All righty. We are live here on Frank Take. This is episode seven. Thank you, everybody, for joining me today, whether you're Facebook Live or Spotify. Um, it is an interesting time to be covering the NFL. I think this week, uh, you know, March Madness obviously has the forefront, uh, the spotlight and the focus of the sports world right now. Um, and with NFL free agency uh, kind of in full gear, a lot of the big signings have happened. Um, I thought I'd tie this show a little bit into uh, March Madness. So today's show, I think we'll start off with a little talk about Deshaun Watson and, and that situation. I think I've gathered enough information, enough stuff has come out that I'm ready to talk about it um, and ready to break it down because that's a big subject and you don't want to just go talking about that uninformed. Um, and then I'll also be ranking the five greatest teams of all time, as well as the five biggest underdog champions in NFL history. Context behind that, um, March Madness, there's been a lot of upsets. That's what brought the underdogs to mind. There's a lot of great teams too. So what, what my vision is for that is um, I sent out a poll to a lot of you guys and had you rank or vote on the best team of all time and then the biggest underdog champion. And then what I did with those rankings is I put it, I put those eight teams uh, into a ranking and I'm going to put out a bracket this week, actually on the Frank takes uh, the Frank takes Instagram. And I will be um, having you guys vote and we'll see who advances through that bracket. So I think that'll be kind of fun. Um, but I wanted to put my two cents in there today as to who I think the best team of all time is. So yeah, uh, lots to cover. And you know what? We will get right into it um, with a little talk about Deshaun Watson. And this situation has certainly been one that is heating up for a while now. Um, and I, like I said, I've waited a long time to speak on this because I wanted to get more of a sense of what's going on, what's happening here. And, you know, here's the bottom line. Uh, this isn't one or two women coming forward, right? The guy has now 16 allegations against him, according to an article on on ESPN yesterday, 16 lawsuits filed against uh, Deshaun Watson. And, you know, I don't want to accuse him of anything because Deshaun Watson has been an outstanding individual from what everyone's seen. Um, and, you know, locker rooms, he's, he's been that type of guy, you know, never had any issues. But when 16 people are coming against you, uh, that's pretty serious. And, you know, while it doesn't necessarily say that he's guilty of all of it, because there have been lies in the past, there's been people, unfortunately, that have come forward and are telling lies. And that could be the case here. But when you have 16 people coming against you, what it does tell me is that there's no way that there's not even a little bit of truth to it, right? Like it's, it's hard to get 16 people to collaborate to the same story against the same guy if there's no shred of evidence. So what it does tell me is that he's probably mixed up in some of this. He's probably had, you know, <clears throat> he's probably had some fault in this. You know, he may not be guilty of it all, but it's not looking good. Um, and, you know, in, in this ESPN article, the his lawyer says that they, they as a team have strong evidence that one of these cases is false. Um, and this could potentially call into question, you know, many of the other cases. Um, and I see that. You know, but I, I, I don't know. We'll see how it all plays out. I think it's sad because if Watson is found guilty, that's, you know, that's a big hit on his name. And with all of the stuff going around right now um, and all the domestic violence 
Like, it's just sad to see this play out. And so, you know, either way, I think this is going to take a long time to clear up whether he ends up being innocent or guilty. There's a lot of stuff to sort through. This type of stuff takes a long time. And so a lot of stuff could happen. We could be looking at a suspension. We could be looking at, you know, out of the league indefinitely. That's probably the worst case scenario. Um, And, you know, to lose a, a star player like Deshaun Watson would be a big hit for the league. Um, to lose a, a guy like that would be tough, but, you know, obviously if he's guilty of it, I think that's the, that's the punishment that has to happen. Those actions are unacceptable. Um, and so we'll, we'll see how it plays out, but I'm, I'm breaking it down here. Best case scenario at this point for Deshaun Watson, I think is that only a few of the lawsuits are found to be true. Like when there's 16 chances are one or two are going to be proven true. I just don't think there's any way that all 16 are a lie. So let's say that they they find one or two, maybe three against him. And, and for that, he's probably going to serve some type of suspension, most likely a four to eight game suspension. Uh, we've seen that kind of be the case for a lot of these guys. Ezekiel Elliott served six games. Kareem Hunt had his, had his thing that was a little longer. Um, a lot of these four game suspensions, those are pretty standard. If it's something more serious, could be eight games. But the reality is, let's say he gets suspended for four to eight games. If you're looking at, at this from the Texans standpoint, he's probably still worth a couple of firsts and some starters, right? Like he, he's not going to be maybe as valuable as the original asking price, but you can still probably get a lot from him. Like in the grand scheme of things, four to eight games isn't detrimental to a franchise. Like if they want Deshaun Watson, they should be willing to say, okay, we might be missing him for eight games this year. We'll get him back next year. I think that's worth it. Um, you know, it'll probably lower his asking price a little bit. Um, but I think the issue for Houston now is actually getting someone to bite at this case, because now you have to wait for this whole situation to pass before you actually make a trade because no one's going to trade in the midst of this, right? Like for all, you know, he could never come back. If all 16 of these are true, nobody's going to sign him again. Um, and so, you know, I think the, the Texans realize that and they're they're obviously going to have to just sit back and watch, wait and see how this plays out. And that's frustrating when you're trying to build a team for the next year for all these teams that are trying to go after Deshaun Watson. Now you're in kind of a stuck position because what do you do? Like if you go after him right now and he doesn't play again, you've just wasted a bunch of picks. So, I mean, it's tough. Um, you know, if it all pans out, OK, maybe Houston gets lucky and they don't lose a lot of value. Um, but I, I just one way or another, like Houston's just in some trouble with this whole thing. Uh, this, this thing really screwed the Texans. And because if you look at it, Watson has said explicitly, Hey, I don't want to play with you guys any longer. I don't want to be here. Uh, he, he claims that relations with the organization are, uh, unfixable. And, and so, all everything that he said up until now points to him sticking in that in that way of thinking right so if you don't trade him he's he's probably going to sit uh and you could end up getting nothing for him but but if you look at this like like Houston is in the driver's seat here they just locked him up he's on a four year deal now he's under contract until 2025 so the chances of him actually sitting out for four years that's the prime years of his career. You think a guy's going to step away and sit out for four years because he's unhappy. There's just no way. 
he's going to come back, especially if these, these allegations are against him and no one else has really given him a chance. He's going to come back. Um, and so Houston has the power here, whether they think it or not. Um, and so what they, what they should not do is rush this situation. Do not panic if you're the Texans and trade this guy at a reduced value. You got to keep him. I think keep him through this time, weather the storm, take your time. I mean, you got nothing. You got no rush here. Like you've already thrown away Deshaun, I mean, DeAndre Hopkins. You've already cut JJ Watt. Your chances of winning now are nothing, right? They gave away Will Fuller. Um, You're trying to rebuild, right? And rebuilding is a process. And so there's no rush to get picks in here this year and, um, and rush it. Like there's just no reason to. So I think they, they should wait it out and, you know, see how this thing pans out, see what the asking price is for Deshaun Watson, what people are willing to pay after this whole thing blows over. Um, because you do not want another DeAndre Hopkins situation. Like if you trade him right now, you may look back and y- you got nothing for him. And they've already messed it up. I mean, the fact that they had J.J. Watt, Deshaun Watson, and DeAndre Hopkins, arguably all of these are top five in their position maybe top three and when it's all said and done they may lose those three guys and only get a fourth round pick out of it like they they need to get a ton of stuff for Deshaun Watson um and so you know I I like that's just that's key so it's you can't be wasting your talent like that um you can't continue to fail in rebuilding otherwise you're going to be stuck at the bottom with no picks so Houston needs to be patient. They need to be smart, um, you know, and obviously it's a bad situation for, for everyone, for the women involved, for Deshaun Watson, for the NFL. Um, but the time is not, it, it's not the time to act quickly. Uh, Houston needs to take a step back, wait this thing out. They've got time on their hands. They should have the leverage on their hands. And, and, and that's what I'm going to say about that. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, I think they, they have the power. So, and, and you look, you know, Houston's obviously affected, but you look at the other franchises who are looking at, um, at Deshaun Watson and they're, you know, kind of in the dark as well. If you're Carolina, right, like you're not going to be willing to give up picks and McCaffrey for this guy anymore. If you're the Broncos, what are you going to give up for him? Uh, you know, the saints, even like these are franchises that are kind of trying to find their QB now and rebuild. Now, these are guys that don't really have time on their side. Like they're trying to make moves now and this whole thing has come up. So they have to wait. So I think it's, it's just hard on a lot of teams and everyone involved. It's a pretty confusing situation. Um, and if we thought we were confused on where Deshaun Watson was going to end up before this whole thing, uh, it is mega confusing now. Like there's just no way to predict how this is going to, turnout so this is a story to continue following in the nfl we'll see how it goes but my advice to the texans is do not trade deshaun watson now uh wait it out don't trade him now and and you know see how this thing turns out for you guys so we'll see if the texans follow through on that they haven't been the most uh intelligent franchise and they haven't proven to make the best moves but we'll see maybe they get it right this time um, so that's what I had on Deshaun Watson. I think we're going to transfer now to, uh, 
the best teams of all time. So I'm going to basically be going through the five best teams of all time from number five to number one. And, and then I'll go through the the underdog teams and then we'll, we'll kind of wrap it up. And, and like I said, that's going to lead into the voting on the story that I'm going to have this week where you guys will kind of get to engage and vote on who you think the best teams are. So um, we'll start at number five and I will say there is some shockers in this list. So we'll see, but the 2009 saints, um, 2009 Saints are my fifth best team of all time. And I think this was a pretty special team. Uh, the offense to me, I, this was one of the first years that I was watching football. And I just remember this offense was ridiculous. They had Sean Payton's mind, um, prime Drew Brees, just dropping darts. They had that downfield offense to prime Marquise Colston. They had Lance Moore, Devery Henderson. Uh, those guys were good back in the day. They had Jeremy Shockey at tight end. Reggie Bush and Pierre Thomas in the backfield, kind of the thunder and lightning duo. They ran a lot of screens. Um, they ran a lot of trick plays. They had downfield options. I mean, they they were ridiculous. That Saints team broke the 500-point mark for the season, averaging 32 a game. Um, I distinctly remember they had a bunch of comebacks early on in the season. They had a comeback in Washington where they were down 17, I believe. They had a huge comeback in Miami. Um and, you know, it was just a special team. Lots of talent on, on the defensive end. They had a bunch of playmakers. They were a mid-level defense. They weren't shut down by any means, uh, but they had enough playmakers. Jonathan Vilma, Darren Sharper, um, you know, obviously Tracy Porter was the one who, who sealed it for them in the Super Bowl. So they had playmakers on that defense, too, um, to kind of balance it out. But, you know, also just thinking about the adversity that that team went through as well. Uh, coming off of Hurricane Katrina a few years ago and just just the ride that they went on to pull it together for that city um, and, and for a franchise that had pretty much been a joke up until that point. Like the Saints, I think, still have a bottom tier winning percentage, um, but obviously Drew Brees brought them out of that uh, and it was a pretty special team. They they started off 13-0, lost their last three games going into the playoffs and then, you know, riding that losing skid, they blew out Arizona in the divisional round slip past the Vikings in a crazy game. Uh, and, you know, Brett Favre was essential in that as he, I don't know, you know, what he was thinking there, but basically rolled out right through one right back into the middle of the field when the Vikings were in position to win the game with a field goal and uh, basically threw the game away. And then, you know, they obviously move on to the Super Bowl, had the legendary onside kick to start the half, and then, uh, and then the pick six to put them up two touchdowns and seal the game. So, you know, that, that was a really good team. Uh, and I think they, they sort of ushered in, like they were the, they were the 2009, like Kansas city, uh, not in the sense that, that they were a dynasty, like Kansas city has the potential to be, but they had playmakers, they had speed, they had a great offensive mind at coach, uh, at head coach. They, they had a great up and coming quarterback, you know, Breeze was in his prime and, you know, they, they went with the strategy of load up on offense and have a couple playmakers on defense to hold it down. And it worked. Uh, and I honestly think that that strategy is pretty underrated. People say defense win championships. And I do think that's true. You have to have a certain extent of defense. Um, but the, the league is, is becoming new, right? Like I think the new strategy is to build up on offense, score consistent points, uh, you know, like just with all the creativity and the way that defense is kind of stifled now with hits and just the rules against them, offense is just easier. Like, frankly, offense is just easier. 
And uh, if you can load up on offense and score points week in and week out and then have a defense that has a few guys that can make plays, a few guys to create some turnovers, um, that's that's the strategy to win. So Saints at number five for me. Um, then we move to the 1985 Bears. Uh, obviously, I was not alive to watch this defense, uh, but it is a – team that is talked about all the time everybody knows about the 85 bears and that defense uh, but looking back on their season they went 15 and 1 brought the championship home to chicago which is actually the last championship that they've won and and then looking at their playoff ride they beat everybody pretty bad uh gave up 12.4 points per game throughout the season and averaged 29 so that's a 17 differential and so they're beating teams pretty good uh they had william perry on that defense mike singletary Leslie, Leslie Frazier had a great year with seven interceptions. Um, and then when they got into the playoffs, they had two straight shutouts and then they went and demolished new England in the super bowl. I believe it was 46 to 10. So, I mean, that, that's a fantastic team. That's when defense could still be played effectively. Um, and the bears made a name for themselves and, and that was a nasty team. So that's the fourth best team I think, uh, in NFL history. Which moves us to number three, the 1989 49ers. 14-2. Uh, this was also a pretty legendary team. Uh, it was Joe Montana's last go. You know, team of the 80s, wrapping things up. Uh, they were coming off a, uh, another Super Bowl title. So this was a repeat campaign, which is pretty special. And, um, I mean, they were pretty excellent all year. Basically went 7-0, I think, lost a game. Uh, and then and then lost a game somewhere in the middle and ended the season on like a six game winning streak. So they, and then this is what was crazy about this team. Their playoff run was just ridiculous. I, like it hasn't been matched since then they go in and beat the Vikings 41 to 13, just blew them out, went in and beat the division rival, the LA Rams who they'd already lost to in the season. And then they go beat them 30 to three. And then they went into the super bowl and just destroyed Denver. It was like 55 to 10 in that super bowl. So that's how they claim their repeat. They went through the playoffs outscoring their opponents 126 to 26, which was an average margin of 33 points. Um, so they just killed everybody. And, and that margin of victory is absolutely unheard of, especially in playoff NFL football. Like games are just close. That's how it goes. But um, I mean, they just blew them out. So that team to me was pretty legendary especially when you think of the context around, you know, the repeat and Joe Montana's kind of last, last go with the Niners. Um, and, and this was at the time too, when the NFC and the AFC were really lopsided, the NFC at one point won 14 Super Bowls in a row. Like it was just ridiculous. And, and a lot of them were blowouts too. Like the bears blew, blew somebody out. Uh, they blew the Patriots out. You had this Niners team blowing somebody out. Dallas blew the, uh bills out twice washington killed the bills like they just had you know i think the packers got a super bowl in there maybe like they they just had a lot of of teams like that that were just ridiculous um and the nfc was just far superior so 1989 49ers that's number three we go to the 1993 cowboys i'm pretty well versed on the 93 cowboys uh, my dad has a lot of these videos at home uh, where it basically it's America's game. You can find them on YouTube as well. 
and they just go through the whole season. And of course, being a Cowboy fan, I've watched these because the nineties were our glory days. Um, never going to let that go. And so I'm pretty well versed on this team, even though I didn't get to watch them live. Um, but this, this 92, 93 Super Bowl was the first in the Cowboys nineties dynasty. And you're, you know, remember when we take averages here, like scoring wasn't as frequent at this time, everybody still ran the ball. They, there wasn't really the no huddle offense. Like the bills were just starting to make that a thing. So, you know, they averaged 25 points per game, which is pretty average for today, but that was second in the league at the time. And they gave up 15 points per game, which is fifth. But if you look at their defense in yards per game, sacks, turnovers, all those categories, Dallas was number one. And that defense was disgusting. Uh, they had Ken Norton out there holding down middle linebacker, Charles Haley rushing the passer, Leon Lett rushing the passer, Darren Woodson in the backfield. Um, and then they had Dion primetime out at corner, Larry Brown out there. Uh, I mean, they just had a really good group. And, and then offense had at least four or five Hall of Famers because you had Troy Aikman at quarterback, Emmett Smith, Michael Irvin, Moose Johnson. And, you know, a few members on that offensive line were also um, Hall of Famers. So that was just – that was a really good team. Uh, and they went 13-3, and three, had Jimmy Johnson at coach, obviously, who's a mastermind. Um, and they that, that team was just loaded, 13-3 and three on the season. And then, then similar to the 89 San Francisco 49ers, the playoffs were kind of just a joke. They beat Philly by 27. They beat the 49ers, who were the dynasty still at that time, beat them by 11. And then they went and blew out Buffalo 52 to 17, forced a Super Bowl record nine turnovers. Um, and this team was so good that it, it it ran it back two more times, nearly had a three-peat if – and probably would have had a three, four, maybe five-peat. That might be a little bias coming through, but, I mean, it's hard to imagine that team losing if they hadn't let go of Jimmy Johnson – but of course, Jerry Jones' stubbornness held the Dallas Cowboys back, even in the '90s. So that's the second best team of all time, in my opinion. You could make a case for some of the other '90s teams too, but we'll keep them out of it. Don't want people to accuse me of being biased. Um, so bringing me to number one, I think this is a clear number one for me: the 2007 Patriots. Um, the 07 Patriots uh, in the in the votes that I sent out in the polls, they, they came out as the best team of all time. 40% of you guys voted them as number one. Uh, and this team was 18 and one. They only fell to the giants, but this team was loaded Averaged 36.8 points per game, which was a league high and a record uh, for NFL history. They only gave up 17.1 per game. So they're, they're beating teams by an average margin of 20 points, which is ridiculous. The, the offense put up more than 34 points in each of their first eight games. Then on the defensive side, they had perhaps the best defensive coach of all time. Bill Belichick hadn't quite, you know, reached the heights he's reached now, but I think we can look back and say he's the best coach of all time. They had eight pro bowlers on their roster and on defense, it was Asante Samuel, Vince Wilfork. They had Mike Vrabel at linebacker. Um, and they just beat teams bad all season long. Um, they had a couple close games in there. They had a really close game against uh, Baltimore, close game against Pittsburgh. Um, but then they go into the playoffs and they beat Jacksonville and San Diego. Their playoff run was a little interesting because they did kind of slow down compared to some of those other teams. Like they rolled in as this crazy team and beat Jacksonville like 31 to 20, beat the 
uh, Chargers 23 to 12. And then, you know, they meet up with the Giants in the Super Bowl. And, you know, we all know how that game goes. The rest is history. Patriots basically ended this season without a ring. And that one loss was the one that counted. Um, but they're still considered the best team of all time in most people's eyes. And, and you know, here's the big controversy with this list. I didn't include the 72 Dolphins. Um, and I just, looking at their schedule, their stats, they won a lot of close games. I think they won the Super Bowl like 14 to 7. I mean, it was the 1970s. I don't have one team on this list from the 1970s. Like football has just changed so much since then. Um, and I think that if you matched them up, even with the teams in the eighties, uh, I, I would take the, the newer teams all day long. And then you look at these teams now and just the way that the game is played, it's faster, it's smarter. Um, and, you know, I just think that football has evolved a lot as a sport. And so that, that favors the new team. So I excluded the the 17 and 0 Miami Dolphins off of this list, um, which, you know, probably going to take some heat for that. Uh, but that's, that's my opinion on the matter. Um, so last part of this biggest underdog teams of all time. This is a fun list. Um, a lot of good upset teams in NFL history and number five coming in 2012 Ravens. They were a five seed. Remember won their division. Uh, basically they were nine and two on the year lost four of their last five games and then kind of had to rally the troops because um, Ray Lewis, you remember that was Ray Lewis's final campaign, final chance at the Super Bowl. They went in, they beat Indianapolis round one pretty handily in Ray Lewis's last home game ever, which is pretty crazy. And then, uh, you know, that famous divisional round in 2012 where they go in and they, they beat the Broncos, Peyton Manning, number one seed, all that good stuff. Beat them 38-35 in double OT. One of the craziest games I've ever watched. And, um, you know, got past that game in a crazy upset. And then kind of stuck it to the Patriots in Foxborough, which was pretty wild. Won that game 28-13 to before going to the Super Bowl. And, that you know, jumped out on the Niners quick and just kind of stayed ahead. That was the famous power outage game. Um, but the reason that I have this team up here is that they weren't, a great team all year. Like they, they were good at the start, but especially in November, December really fell off and uh, they definitely weren't supposed to be there. You know, the Patriots were had a much better chance at that. The Broncos were really good that year. Um, and so those two teams were kind of standing in their way and to go on the road and beat them both to beat Brady and Peyton Manning is pretty legendary. Um, and then to do it in the name of Ray Lewis, in a sense, like his last go at it. Um, pretty special. So I have the Ravens as my fifth biggest underdog champion of all time. Going to number four, the 2010 Packers. Uh, this was young Aaron Rodgers, only his third season that he started. And, you know, he got it done. It's crazy to think that he hasn't won one since then. Packers have had a lot of opportunities, but the NFC championship bites him in the butt every single year. Um, but it didn't this year, 2010. Packers were a six seed heading into the playoffs. Uh, basically, they'd won their final two games of the regular season to even get into the playoffs. Uh, and then they they battled out round one in Philly, won that one by five. Then they went and blew out the Falcons. Uh, that game was pretty memorable. Beat them 48 to 21. Rodgers put on a show. And then they went back outdoor in the cold and beat the Bears 21-14. Division rival. That was a pretty epic 
championship with BJ Raji's pick six. Um, and then, you know, beat the Steelers in the Super Bowl, got out to the 21-3 lead early, and then they just kind of stayed ahead. So um, what's special about this team is just the fact that they were a 10-6 and team who was the number six seed overall in the playoffs. Like, to win a Super Bowl at the six seed is just ridiculous because basically you have to go on the road three games in a row, and usually you're playing against the one, two, and the three seed. So the three best teams in your conference in their home stadium playing them back to back to back, putting together your three best games. And that's like, I mean, that's just so difficult to do because they played Philly, who was the three. They played Atlanta in in the um, divisional round, who's the number one seed, and then went and played the Bears, who were the number two. And, you know, only twice in NFL history has a six seed won the Super Bowl. And the other one was the 2005 Steelers. Um, but yeah, I, I really, this is one of the greatest underdog champions. Packers kind of came out of nowhere. Um, and actually, unfortunately, they have a relation to the number three underdog champion on this list, which is the 2011 Giants. Um, you'll hear about that connection in a second. The Giants were crazy because basically what's funny about the Giants is that they they just basically redid their 2007 season. They just did it again. And it was it's wild because to win two Super Bowls that that close is already fantastic. But to do it in the same way, you're like, okay, well, I assume then they had a great regular season, got home field advantage through the playoffs, all that, right? No. Like the way the Giants did it every time was they shot out to a 6-2 and two start, did that in 2007, and then they kind of fell off and they were average heading into the playoffs. In 2011, actually, they won the division at 9-7, and seven, um, which is wild because, uh, I mean, you just don't generally win a division at 9-7. and seven. Uh, unless you're playing in the NFC East. So first of all, playing in the NFC East is what saved him there. And then, you know, they go into the playoffs, they beat Atlanta, and then Green Bay, right, who won the Super Bowl in 2010. Green Bay is this powerhouse now, 15-1, and and the Giants go in and win that game in pretty handy fashion. Like, they, they beat the Giants – I mean, they beat the Packers pretty good in that game. Um, and – so that, that was their strategy. And then they go in and they beat San Francisco on the road too. So it's just crazy that their Super Bowls were all so similar. They just caught fire at the same time and just went on the road and beat three teams and got in. And then, and then of course, upset New England in the Super Bowl. That's the common thread of Eli Manning. Like, that's just what he does. Um, and another similarity was another wild catch in the Super Bowl. This one was by Mario Manningham along the sideline if you guys remember that one the the first obviously david tyree but you know just this story for the giants to to do that twice in a row and have those be eli manning super bowl runs is pretty pretty great and that's what we love about nfl football is just the ability of these underdogs to go into the playoffs any given sunday and go get it done um so the 2011 giants are at number three number two Blast from the past, 1969 Jets. Uh, this is kind of a different underdog because the Jets were actually 11-3 and three this year. This is back when the NFL only had 14 games. Um, but the Jets basically were going into the Super Bowl against the Baltimore Colts at the time. They were 18-point underdogs. And, uh, yeah, just nobody gave them a chance to win. Super Bowl was still young. I think one conference was pretty superior to the other one. Um, but Joe Namath basically comes out and calls the victory 
and everyone's calling them crazy. And then they go win the Super Bowl by nine points after being 18 point underdogs. And I think this upset is key because it was such a big boost for the sport of football. Like I think it ignited the, the, uh, the, the rivalry between the two conferences. They made the Super Bowl that much more exciting. People realized that, you know, any given team can get it done. It wasn't a powerhouse sport. Um, and so I think, yeah, Joe Namath and just that Jets team helped people become intrigued with it. Um, they were kind of the first big upset story in the NFL. And yeah, just a really cool team, really cool time uh, in sports. And so for that reason, I put them at number two. Leads me to number one, and that is the 2008 Giants. Um, they were 10 and six, actually. Uh, and it was just the most classic Giants season ever. Basically the same, like I said, as the 2011 season. They were six and two, looked strong, and then they kind of just fell off in the second half of the year, finished at 10 and six. So they go into Tampa Bay round one, win a battle. Uh, their defense was really good. And then they go into Dallas, who had beat them twice that year, and they go upset Dallas. And that game came out of the wire as well. I, I have a specific memory of my dad in that game, and just like the devastation on his face when Patrick Creighton dropped that ball on third down. Um, and then Dallas couldn't get it done in the last drive of the game. Uh, I mean, it was just – it was so Giants to go and win a game. You know, it's almost like the Giants know how to catch a team on their bad day in the playoffs, like these teams that are clearly better than them, they just catch them on a bad day. Um, and, you know, it's just, it's a little too lucky to make it, to make you think it's luck, you know, like, I don't know, maybe it's not a coincidence. The giants were just, they're just different in the playoffs. Um, but, you know, so then after that game, they basically go into, into Lambo and they beat Brett Favre in overtime, 23, uh, 20, again, shades of 2011, and, and then they go and take down the best team of all time, by most people's opinion, win that game 17 to 14, went into the game as 12 point underdogs. And they just got it done. Their defensive line dominated. They got a few key plays and a clutch drive from Eli Manning. And, you know, the Giants just embody the underdog mentality. Like they, they have an ability to stick in a game with a team that's better than them. You just stick in it. You see this in March Madness. This is universal with all sports. If you can just stay in a game with a team that's better than you, just stay right there, right, you know, hand on their hand on their right hip. You're just right there. And then you just take advantage of that opportunity at the end of the game. And they, the Giants would just have an ability to pull it out at the end in magnificent fashion. And, you know, just a true underdog. That's the New York Giants uh, in the Eli Manning era. So, that was my number one underdog team. Like I said, uh, we're going to put these these teams all into brackets and have you guys vote on them on Instagram, which I think will be really exciting to see who you guys think is ultimately going to win out. Is it going to be the uh, the favorites, the, the 2007 Patriots, or, you know, the underdogs? We'll see how it goes. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to, to see that play out on Instagram. Um, so be sure to check in and vote on my story. And just thank you for listening, you guys. The, uh, the off season is rolling along. This was kind of a fun week. And, you know, next season we'll, we'll get into free agency grades. I'll be looking at the teams and what they've signed, how they've done. And then we'll kind of go into mock drafts next. So it is progressing. We're, we're slowly getting closer to the 2021 season. 
couldn't be happier about that. But uh, once again, thank you guys for tuning in and I will be back with you guys uh, next week.